Hey everybody, welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast, dedicated to raising awareness, sharing IBD stories, and offering support for those with Crohn's and colitis. Together, we can share knowledge, experiences, and help show the world the many faces of IBD. Well, hi everyone. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior since 2006 and lifelong fitness fanatic. My guest today is Renee Taylor, who you might recognize as Killing It With Crohn's on Instagram, where she shares her story and life's adventures with Crohn's and other chronic illnesses. She's here to share her journey with IBD, tips and tricks for managing flares, and how she balances life with Crohn's. Thank you so much for joining me today, Renee, and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Fantastic. I'm excited to have you. I love hearing hearing the IBD stories, and I can't wait to hear yours. So let's go ahead and we'll just jump right into the show. And why don't you start by sharing your Crohn's story and how you were diagnosed? Sure. So I was a junior in college. So coming up in March will be about two years. Um, I started to get really sick over my spring break. I kind of chalked it up to just being the flu. I've always had issues with uh, food allergies. So we'll say I didn't know it ended up being Crohn's, but I've always had issues with food, like not feeling well. I, you know, I think we all think we're lactose intolerant till we mm-hmm. <laughs> get diagnosed with an IBD. Um, and I just thought I had the flu. And then it just started to get progressively worse to um, the point where I ended up needing to go to the hospital because I started to develop these like very large softball-sized red bumps all over my leg. Initially, I thought maybe my dog brought like a bug into bed with her when she was sleeping. I I like have sensitive skin, so maybe I was allergic to a new softener. I really wasn't sure, but they got like very, very, very painful, and it I ended up not being able to walk. So I went to the ER and they did a bunch of testing. They gave me fluids, uh, pumped me with like Advil, that good stuff. And they Mm -hmm. said, "Um, have you ever heard of Erythema nodosum? And I said, no. And they're like, okay, well, are you pregnant? And I said, no. And they said, okay, well, we think you have Crohn's disease. So basically, um, Erythema nodosum is a symptom that one to 2% of Crohn's patients. And I think three to four percent of um, UC patients get. But I up until that, I was like, I don't have anything wrong with me. I just have the flu. Um, so the next steps were you get the doctor's appointment, you get the colonoscopy, blah, blah, blah. But as we all know, with the healthcare system, it took quite a while to get an appointment. Um, so that was in March, and I didn't have a colonoscopy until May 25th. And the doctor like right away said, hey, look, you have Crohn's disease. There's like a ton of inflammation. It's really severe. Um, we just, we have to treat you with prednisone right away. So. Wow. What what was the time like between that March to May that you were waiting for the colonoscopy? Had everything continued to get worse at that point? I mean, as you can imagine, it was like a steep plummet downhill. Um Mm-hmm. I still like wasn't able to walk a lot. I I also get really bad tendonitis in my Achilles, so that like limits me from walking too. Um, lots of weight loss, um, fatigue, stomach pain. I'm very lucky in the sense that with my IBD, I don't um, suffer a lot of the quote unquote bathroom issues per se. I get like I feel like all the obscure um, things. So. My stomach did hurt, but I had a lot of, like, terrible fevers. Um, I used to get these, like, blackout spells where I would just, like, pass out and I would just, like, shake violently and, like, lose control of my body. Um, Yeah, I ended up losing 60 pounds. So it was a lot of, like, immobility and I guess just, like, loss of daily life. Definitely not a fun disease. (laughs) (laughs) No. It's a... I think you're one of the first ones that I've talked to that's really experienced so many of the kind of the extra intestinal manifestations that we always hear about, but they do fall into the, you know, the rare categories of one to 2%. And, and for you to, 
to really be suffering with more of those, you know, than what, what most people do is, it's interesting how the disease manifests in, in every mm-hmm. different person. Yeah. I always like to explain it as like a spectrum disease. Like everybody experiences it so differently. So whenever my friends like ask like, Oh, like what's it like? I'm like, well, this is my experience, but you're going to meet another person with IBD that has a completely different experience. Yeah. Which makes it hard to, in a way to tell people about it. Cause it's like, here's, you know, my story, but mm-hmm. it's going to be totally different for someone else. And, and people, I know when I've talked with people about it and they're like, Oh, so is it just what you eat or is it, you know, or is, is those just the symptoms? It's like, no, no, it's oh, <laughs> no, far, no, no. far more layers than, <laughs> yeah. than you would imagine. So what happened after you finally, you got your colonoscopy, they started you on prednisone right away. It sounded like, what well, was your experience and the journey from there? So I was, I took prednisone only, I want to say for like three or four days. And I ended up experiencing like, terrible, terrible pain that I honestly thought was much worse than the pain I was experiencing pre-prednisone. Um, mm. I I couldn't stomach any food. I also was having like insane mood swings. I was not sleeping. So I told my doctor, I called him, I said, I, I literally cannot take this anymore. I, I need something else. And he said, I'm not treating you with anything other than prednisone. So you're going to have to deal with it. Um, so he had me get an emergency CAT scan done and that was like an awful experience because I was so sick, like not able to like literally function on my own. My poor boyfriend drove me like an hour away to get this CAT scan. I basically, they couldn't find any veins. I had to get my, um, IV in such an obscure place. And then it came back that, you know, everything was fine and dandy. And he said, well, I'm still only going to treat you with prednisone. So I don't know what to tell you. Um, what was he hoping to find on a CAT scan? What did he think that would I, show or change? I have no idea. I really don't. And I think at that point I was so sick and I don't live with my parents. I live about two and a half hours away from them. So mm-hmm. they kind of were like, like, just do what you think is right. Just take, you know, the doctor's orders um, so we went for it and I don't really know what the whole point of that was, but it was terrible. Yeah. And I just, you know, thought maybe it could give me more answers. Maybe it could show that I needed to be treated with something else. Um, I really don't know what his line of thought was for that, but it yeah. still came down to the whole, I'm only treating you with prednisone. Um, so at that point, me, I made the decision that I didn't want to see this doctor anymore because he wasn't you know, meeting my needs, I thought, as a patient, and I was just being treated as another number. So mm-hmm. I um, actually have autoimmune hepatitis as well. I was diagnosed with that when I was two years old. And the GI I see for that, he is in a different practice. So I thought, well, I see him, like maybe he can recommend a doctor. So we got in contact with him. Um, he actually wanted to see me in the office. So it was like another three weeks until I got to see him and he was just like, you know, I can't help you, but here's this doctor that is really great. I think can help you. So I got put into another doctor's hands, which was another three weeks later. And he was phenomenal. I, I really loved him. Um, he's since left the practice, so he's no longer my doctor, but he was the best. Um, Mm -hmm. and he took what I had to say very seriously. And I said, look, I, I won't go on prednisone. I don't want to get surgery. I just want to like do this with a balance of Western medicine and like holistically, I'm not really into like just being on pills for the rest of my life. So um, Mm -hmm. we started with Remicade about again, another three weeks after. So at that point I had. What time frame was this? So that was from May to the end of July. Okay. Um, So I didn't get my like first infusion until the end of July after like the whole fiasco switching all the doctors and the insurance and all that jazz yeah that's quite a quite a stretch of time from when you first tried to go in and get help (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it was very frustrating I ended up moving home with my dad so he could take care of me full-time because I just I 
was not functioning. As you can imagine, when you're flaring, it's hard. And I think when you have that yeah. first really, really bad flare and it just like takes your life from you, it's like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm young. Like what, what can I do? So my dad like took me in and was just taking care of me. What happened after the Remicade? Did you finally start to get some relief and kind of be, have a chance to start putting your life back, back together at that point? Yeah, honestly, I got my Remicade infusion on a Wednesday and that weekend I went up on a trip to Pittsburgh. So like I was like wow. 85% better within three days. Oh, that's awesome. It was, I mean, the, it wasn't like all rainbows. It was definitely a hard trip. Like I remember like sleeping a lot of the car ride, but I mm-hmm. like three days before that I was basically non-existent like I like couldn't hold a conversation with someone I wasn't eating I couldn't walk on my own I wasn't sleeping I was just like I would just sit in the shower all day and like just try to stay warm like so it was a very big turnaround (laughs) in like three days yeah that's night and day that's Mm -hmm. wonderful to hear really I mean that's that's incredible so you started that probably close to Two years ago, I guess, a year and a half ago. This summer, it'll be coming up on two years. Mm -hmm. And so tell me a little bit. You mentioned a a minute ago that your goal is to really be able to do this as a combination of Western medicine and and holistic. Over the past couple of years, have you been able to bring those worlds together a little bit? And talk to me about that path and kind of what's happened since Remicade and you, you got moving again. So I have I was on medication from the time I was two years old up until I was about 18 from my autoimmune hepatitis and I got this like little glimpse of what life looks like not having to you know pop pills and get blood work every three weeks and I was like this this Mm -hmm. is the good life (laughs) um (laughs) like I just when I got diagnosed with Crohn's I kept thinking back on that time where I didn't have to deal with those things and for me, that is an end goal of mine. Um, so I'm actually right now on Humira because I ended up fall, uh, failing out of Remicade um, November mm-hmm. of last year. So I've been on Humira since January, and it's it's definitely been a journey with Humira. Um, I was biweekly, then I was weekly, And then I started to reject it in July. My antibody levels were 364. And I was like, I I cannot go on another medication. I cannot switch. I can't handle this constant switching every X amount of months. So that's when I started to really hone in on my diet and my um, fitness, I guess, journey and like stress levels. And now my, and I guess like other outside um, more holistic approaches. Mm-hmm. And now my antibody levels are, are zero. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So it took a lot of work, but it, it was like, again, like finding that balance between the two. Yeah. Now, before we jump into that, tell me real quick, does the autoimmune hepatitis, does that have any kind of overlap or kind of link with the Crohn's disease? Or is it just, um, I know sometimes it's more common when people do have one autoimmune Mm -hmm. issue, they'll have multiple. So do you think there's any relation there? So, um, well, like you said, I guess like when you have one autoimmune disorder, the chances of getting another are like exponential. So I actually have a third. I'm, I also have Hashimoto's. Um, Mm. but so I actually had a conversation about this with my first doctor that, or my second doctor that I absolutely loved. And I was taking a medication for my, autoimmune hepatitis called azathioprine that actually treats Mm -hmm. IBD patients. So I was taking that until I was 18. And then when I got, was 18, that's when I started to think I was lactose intolerant and couldn't handle gluten or it was the school food because I was at college or it was that lifestyle. Excuse me. So my doctor was like, you know, Renee, like, I, I think you've had Crohn's your whole life, but you were treating it without knowing and then you went then you went off this medication when you were 18 and your body was like all right you know like we can kind of handle this like nothing crazy is happening and then when I 
was first diagnosed with Crohn's like months before that I went I had like a very traumatic experience and got extremely extremely stressed and then that's what kicked it into overdrive and I started to flare with it so Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's linked but the like tea on my life (laughs) per se is that they think Mm -hmm. I've actually had Crohn's my whole life but was just formally diagnosed it would make sense I mean Mm -hmm. it definitely definitely would make sense it's kind of interesting what the body does and how it evolves and once it goes haywire (laughs) it's like one thing after after the next yeah (laughs) yeah so tell me more about the journey that you started to talk about with bringing diet and fitness and controlling stress paint that picture a little bit about because it sounds like that it has been just tremendously beneficial in managing IBD with bringing all these other factors in. So talk to me a little bit about what fitness was like before, what your diet was like before, Mm -hmm. and then maybe some of these new things that you're doing that was able to bring those levels all the way down to to zero. Yeah. So um, just to preface, I think that everybody has their own journey and like, this is mine and this is what Mm -hmm. works for me. And I totally respect what other people do. So I actually started out trying to be, um, plant-based uh, a little bit when I first, well, a couple months into my diagnosis after I had kind of gotten a handle on it. So like this time last year I was plant-based and, you know, I, I felt good or so what I thought was good after just going through that whole shindig of this, losing 60 pounds and pretty much being a corpse. So mm-hmm. I thought that was what was best for me. Um, I felt okay. My numbers were okay. I, I didn't realize that it was just okay though. I thought, you know, mm-hmm. this is normal. So then I ended up failing out of the Remicade and again, I just felt okay. Into January of this year, I just felt what I thought was good, but was just okay. So when I started to fail out of the Humera, I was like, you know what? I, I need to do something different because I think I can feel better if I reevaluate certain areas of my life. So Mm -hmm. although plant-based didn't work for me, I know that there are some people with IBD that it works tremendously for. Um, It just wasn't for me. So I started to incorporate a lot of like, I don't, I still don't really eat a lot of red meat, just personal preference. I'm not a huge fan of red meat. Um, Mm -hmm. But I started incorporating a lot of fish, a lot of chicken, a lot of like, protein, um, like protein powder, uh, just heavily, heavily protein based and then, um, potatoes and like rice. And I know that that Mm -hmm. doesn't work for some people as well. Some people don't eat grains and that's okay. Again, IBD is all about Mm -hmm. what's doing, what works for you. And I was like, you know what, like, this is what it feels like to have more energy. And like, this is what it feels like when my digestive system is actually doing what it's supposed to so that was it was a really huge adjustment I mean I still I don't eat corn I don't eat soy and I don't eat gluten and I can eat I can tolerate dairy like pretty normally I I stay away from like a lot of dairy but like I'm not gonna lie I like house Jenny's ice cream like Mm -hmm. nobody's business Mm -hmm. I mean it's fine for me there are some people who are like very strictly no dairy, but for me, that's what works for me. And I actually kept, I kept a food log of like Mm -hmm. what I was eating and how I felt, um, after shortly after, and then like long-term. And I actually got a little neurotic with it, I will say, and kind of had some like weird, um, food relationship issues, I'd say from that. So I drew a line Mm -hmm. and stopped doing the food journal, but it it did help. So I would suggest if you are newly trying to figure out what diet works for you, food journaling really helps if you can establish a healthy relationship. And how long did it take for you to start noticing trends with the foods that you were eating versus how you were feeling? I would say probably like well, it was like a slow, like incorporating, like incorporating it type of thing. It wasn't like a, okay, I'm going to go out and buy completely new groceries because I think that's sometimes unrealistic. I don't like to waste food. So it was kind of like slowly accumulating to the diet Mm -hmm. I'm at now. So I would like, I gave myself a grace period of like two to three months, 
but I really like after like being completely with this diet, I felt like infinitely better probably after like three to four weeks. That's awesome. And you're still following pretty much what you just described there, heavily protein, Mm -hmm. some meats and fish, potatoes and rice is still pretty much what you're following now. Yep. I eat pretty much the same breakfast every day of like oats, banana, and uh, like some good grade A yogurt, I think does the trick for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I eat like a protein source and like a potato for lunch. And for dinner, it's kind of like a very, a more fun-ish variation, mm-hmm. I say, I'll say mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, hey, I'm a big fan of doing the same thing every day because mm-hmm. if it's working and you enjoy it and it fits into the routine, I like it. Yeah, well, that's, I'm never not going to eat oatmeal for breakfast because I think it's bomb. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like to do the overnight oats. I just stick them in the fridge with some water and let them sit. And it Mm -hmm. seems to do really well with me. So I haven't, I like, there's something about waking up in the morning and I make it and I'm like, Oh, I feel so productive because I take it to work with me. (laughs) So it's like kind of Mm -hmm. overnight oats because it's like room temperature at that point. (laughs) But Ah, um, (laughs) I like take it with me to go. And then I, I like eat, I try to eat, like I let my stomach sit for at least an hour and a half to two hours by the time I wake up, mm-hmm. I know a lot of IBD patients try to do intermittent fasting. Some people like to eat when they wake up. I just found that the whole two-hour window, per se, like helps my stomach reset mm-hmm. and like get a bearing on like how we're going to act today. Now, do you do smaller meals or is just that kind of breakfast a, a small meal with oatmeal? Do you find there's a difference with how your body responds to large versus small meals? I think it depends on my level of fitness the day before. So if I, like if I, for example, I did a quad at my spin studio on Saturday. So I did um, four spin classes in a row and it was so much fun. I had a blast, but I did like, I probably burned close to like 3000 calories and like um, I, we biked like 52 miles. So that day I had like two, probably very small. I had like two, um, go macro bars to get me through the classes, but you know, I really wasn't hungry that day. Like I had two mm-hmm. pretty small meals. I came home, I ate my oatmeal. And then that night I ended up eating like, I want to say like chicken and rice or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then Sunday I was like ravenous. So I had mm-hmm. like larger meals. Um, I, I think it like, re- it, for me, it really depends what my level of fitness looks like the days before. And if I'm like about to get my period. Mm-hmm. It definitely makes a difference when those hormones mm-hmm. come into play and start mm-hmm. to, for me, I need bread and chocolate. <laughs> yes. By the, yeah. By the I'm always like, why do I only want cereal right now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So tell me more about fitness. You just mentioned it. You cycled 52 miles the other day. Fitness is obviously mm-hmm. a huge part of your life. How does that help with your flares? And have you noticed, is this something that was part of the the whole journey into bringing this diet, fitness, and stress management in, or were, have you always been active? Um, I well, I just to preface, I genuinely loved. I feel better when I sweat. So another sidebar mm-hmm. that I think really helps with my Crohn's is I um, do infrared sauna. I try to do it once a week, every other week if I'm like feeling pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like a supplemental for me to sweat it out. I think it's great if you have access to an infrared sauna, take advantage of it. I know it stems from a place of privilege and access, but acknowledge if you have that privilege and that access and I don't know, take advantage Mm -hmm. of it. So for me, I feel a lot better when I move and I sweat and I um, take advantage of the place I'm at with fitness. I've played sports all throughout high school. In college, I didn't play sports, but I got really into working out. I actually became a fitness instructor mm-hmm. my sophomore year. So I became super involved with 
teaching body pump. If you've ever taken one of their classes, they're super I fun. Have. I have. I think mm-hmm. most everyone has. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the best. I have, I always say I met like my best friends through fitness and I met like my mm-hmm. best friend, Nicole. Nicole, if you ever listen, I love you. Um, through, <laughs> we'll <shout> body pump. <laughs> through body pump. So I ended up being like the fitness studio, like manager uh, my senior year. And then I also ended up working at the front desk at a cycle bar. I don't know if you've ever taken a cycle bar class, but they're very fun. I have not. Oh, you should. They're so good. I love <laughs> You're going to have to. I don't know if I could do 52 miles, but. Uh... <laughs> you definitely, it's very, it's all mental. I'm telling you. The first class is the hardest. And then mm-hmm. you kind of just black out the next three. Like you're just like in it. It's all, it's all mental. I'm telling you. I'll come late to my first one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good plan. Um, But fitness has, yeah, I think it's always been a big part of my life. I kind of feel a little incomplete without it. Um, I I think it's helped a lot with maintaining my health state that I'm in now. But I also Mm -hmm. think fitness is a part of routine. So I think a lot of IBD patients thrive off of routine. and. Mm -hmm. For me, fitness falls in my routine, whether it's lifting, which I've gotten really into since I've made that like switch uh, this coming year uh, versus like feeling like I need to do just cardio and abs. So I think like reevaluating what fitness looks like for you is also necessary for IBD patients because maybe pre-diagnosis, they were training for marathons and post-diagnosis, mm-hmm. they're like, you know what feels better? Like some hot yoga and bar. So mm-hmm. it's kind of just like meeting your body and putting it into your routine if it works for you as a routine. Yeah, that's a great perspective on that and a great thing to point out of just you know, there's different, different activities for different times. And if you need to reevaluate and change what you're doing, that is definitely the, the thing to do. So, And it's hard. I mean, you always want to have like, quote unquote, your old body. Like you always compare yourself then to now. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I remember when I could do this. I remember when I could do that. Well, I don't, I feel very proud of myself with the things I can do now. And I'm proud of myself of what I did back then, like with becoming a fitness instructor and X, Mm -hmm. Y, and Z, but I'm also proud of myself of where I'm at now and meeting myself where I'm at now. I've dedicated most of my life to fitness and health, but as I've grown older and felt the effects of fatigue as I've battled Crohn's, I no longer want to spend hours in the gym every day which is how I first stumbled across the Cellar Size Rebounder. It's become the backbone of my fitness routine these days, giving me the ability to tailor my workouts from gentle movement to intense jumping that literally activates every cell in the body. And the best part is, it only takes 10 minutes a day for an incredible workout. Find out for yourself what a difference Cellar Size can make in your health by visiting Crohn'sFitnessFood.com forward slash Cellar Size. Now, how much were you able to do when you had your your big flare um, a couple of years ago before you started the Remicade and everything? How much were you able to do at that point? Did you have to put fitness aside or did you just take it down to low impact kind of things? Tell me about that. So I was super blessed. I was still working at the where I taught body pump and I was I was open with my bosses and I said, look, I'm going through this. I don't really know what's happening, but I I can't teach my classes. I'd love to, but I just really can't. So we ended up I ended up canceling my classes for the rest of my semester, but I would do light impact, you know, like I also ended up inter- like I guess interviewing, sorry, word, interviewing potential mm-hmm. uh, instructors for like the coming year. So I would I'd sit in on their like 20-minute demos and do the best that I could. But once May came around and the semester ended, uh, just a little before my colonoscopy, I was like, I, I have to stop. Um, just like getting up and walking from my room to the living room felt like a chore for me. I, I was to the point where I, I couldn't even drive. So I, mm-hmm. was, I wasn't allowed to drive. So it didn't make sense to move my body. I mm-hmm. think for me, um, 
I I physically can't move my body because I have erythema nodosum. So I ended up I was in a flare from April to uh, May of this year, and I was in a wheelchair for a couple weeks. So during those periods of times, I I literally can't do fitness mm-hmm. the way I'd want to, and it's kind of just like out of the cards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that some people when they're like not as heavily flaring, but still flaring, they can still walk and they feel great with walking. So it's just, again, like just meeting your, where you're at. But for me, when I'm flaring, it's, it's like game over for me. And what do you, what do you do for the mental aspect of that? Because fitness is such a huge part of your life and has been such a part of your routine. What kind of mental tips or tricks or kind of mindset, um, work or motivation how do you get through those times when your body is so run down and fighting a flare that's so bad that like you're in a wheelchair you can't do anything what does that that mindset look like i mean let's be honest it's not always positive it's it's so unrealistic for us to go into everything Mm -hmm. with a positive mindset i have those days where i'm like this literally sucks and I can't believe I'm in this state right now. But I also always tell myself, like, this isn't forever. Like, you got through the first Mm -hmm. one, you're going to get through the next one. And one of my biggest tips is I always celebrate little victories. So if I felt a little bit better that day and I was like, you know what? Like, maybe I'll walk around my house. This will be good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, when I was very sick, my... when I was living home with my dad, who's taking care of me, I would literally just walk around our living room and I would try to see like, all right, I did 10 laps today. Like that is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was just always celebrating what little improvements I was making. And I think coming with that, you also have um, negative side of, not negative side effects, not improve the opposite word of improvements. I'm blanking on it mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> but you, you have improvements, but then you so have these deprovements. Deprovements, if that's even a word. Next day, where I know. You might not have that. So it's just acknowledging, like, okay, yesterday I was at 10. Today I'm at eight laps. But, like, you know, I'm going to try again. And as long as I woke up and knew, like, I really, really tried to do whatever I was trying to do that day. And it may just be staying awake for 12 hours, then I had to celebrate that because there's not much to celebrate when you're flaring. You're not out there, you know, Mm -hmm. curing cancer and running marathons. You're, you're Mm -hmm. just surviving. So you have to celebrate any, anything that you can to keep you going forward. I think that's a great tip. I mean, just like you said, every little thing to just focus on what you can celebrate, whether it's big or little that day. So what is the the stress management look like for you? You mentioned that, that that was a big part of bringing that into your whole lifestyle of hopefully getting to the end point of finding the good intersection between holistic and Western medicine. So talk to me about stress management and, and where that's led you? Sure. Again, I think stress management looks a lot different for everyone. Um, For me, Mm -hmm. stress management doesn't really look like face masks and getting my nails done. Although I will say I, those things definitely help at times. I, I like getting a pedicure as much as the next girl, but for Mm -hmm. me, um, stress management really looked at a very introspective me And I was like, where are my limits? Where is my no-go, no more? And how can I know before I get that limit to let others know around me that I'm almost there? So it's Mm -hmm. a lot of, for me, it was a lot of looking into like, okay, am I approaching getting stressed? Because you don't want to get stressed because stress leads to flaring and are my all of my relationships healthy? It, are my parental relationships? Is my relationship with my boyfriend healthy? Is my relationship with my friends healthy? Like, what in my life is serving me for the positive, for the good, for my future? Um, it's it's very very hard, and 
there's no right or wrong way to do that. But for me, stress management looked a lot like reevaluating where I was at, what factors mentally pushed me to reach that stress level that I was when I got sick, and how do I avoid getting there or know my triggers. And have you always had a mindset like this, or is this something that really came after the Crohn's diagnosis? I have always been someone that feels a lot of emotions very, very, very deeply. So I think, you know, everybody always is like, oh, you're mm-hmm. so emotional. Blah, blah, blah. Coming to college, I kind of found things and hobbies that highlighted that having that many emotions isn't a bad thing at all. And it's actually like very, very beautiful. So I think Mm -hmm. college is when I really started to acknowledge that it's not a bad thing, that I am always thinking about feelings and how I'm, how I'm feeling and what I'm thinking and who I am and wanting to dig deeper in a self-reflective way. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I had some like, I guess, traumatic seems so over the top, but traumatic experiences where I mm-hmm. started to like really, really invest in myself. So pre a little bit before Crohn's and then like definitely it got a lot more um, intensive as I got diagnosed. And are there, were there different books or different resources that you used or followed as you kind of developed this mindset? I'm just thinking if there's listeners out there. I know for myself personally, I've kind of been doing a similar journey of this gratitude and mindset and awareness. So tell me what some of your resources were that really helped deepen this perspective and, and take you down this path. Do you have any recommendations? Um, well, one. Uh, I go to therapy. I think if you have access and um, mm-hmm. can afford therapy, everybody should go to therapy. Again, it's another thing of privilege, but if you have access, do it. Um, mm-hmm. I My therapist makes me feel very validated and like challenges me in thought. Uh, I never like read any books kind of on pers- these topics or anything like that. But mm-hmm. I also found like it taking the, how do I want to phrase this? I found that investing in my interests caused me to think more about myself and like not being afraid mm-hmm. of those interests. They, they might not be the interests of everybody else and like that's okay. But when you're fully invested and like engulfed in something that you love and you're passionate about, you just like you're in your own Mm -hmm. world. Like you're able to like think about yourself and how you're feeling about things like that. Um, Another resource, what I would say is supportive friends or mentors, people that you feel like you can be open with and say, all right, tell me. I want to know, like, am I crazy? But like, this is, this is how I'm feeling or like, this is what I'm thinking right now. And being vulnerable Mm -hmm. with people in your life that you, you think you can, because I think personal connection also leads to a lot of self-reflection because you might connect with someone on a shared experience and then you start talking about it and you're like, oh my God, wait, I felt that way about X, Y, and Z. And I thought it was just me. Like I thought I was crazy. And then that person's is like, no, I felt this way too. And then you bond over that. And then you, I've had experiences where I'll like, think about that conversation. I'm like, oh my gosh, I did feel X, Y, and Z. And I feel so validated that I felt that way. That seems like very vague and like, uh, woohoo, but like, I'm not being very specific in my answers, but validation of feelings from like trusted people, whether it's a therapist or a mentor or someone you respect or a significant other, like exploring your thoughts and experiences yeah. just by like talking them out loud, I felt was like very helpful in self-reflection. And I mean, if you're not yeah, comfortable with talking, I know journaling is like, a huge outlet for very, something very similar. Cause it's like you're talking, but to a notebook, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> no one has to, no one has to know. <laughs> no, no one has to be like, actually, no, I've never felt that way. You are absolutely yeah. <laughs> crazy. 
I think that's some great advice. It's some great tips in there. And I appreciate you sharing all that. I want to talk a little bit more about flares before we jump into, I do want to talk about advocacy because you are sharing so much, but tell me a little bit more about flares. We've talked about the number of flares you've been through, but we haven't really talked about, are there certain things that you do when you go into a flare that you find helps to make you feel better? Or what do you do to help get you through those times? Is it just a waiting game or is there anything that you like to do in practice? I think, so it is a bit of a waiting game. And I think something to import, important to remember during that waiting game is you got to hold on to sen- some sense of normalcy. You know, like everything feels lost in those moments. I, I have been there. It feels like there's no no point in going on. There's no point in trying anymore. But there, you have to think of something that you can achieve or hold on to or talk about or think about amidst your flare that you can also do when you are not flaring. So consistency to some type of normalcy is, I think, is so key for me. So whether that's staying in touch with a friend that has known you pre-diagnosis, post-diagnosis, pre-flare, post-flare, or if that is reading because you love to read all the time or writing letters to someone, just something that can you can hold on to as like a glimmer of hope that like everything might not feel normal right now, but you have this one piece mm-hmm. that it's going to be there for you right now. And then when you're out of this. I love that. And I love that it's so simple too. And that it's, you can pick something, just the examples you gave that you can pick something that is so easy that even in a worst flare, you can reach out to a friend or you can read something, but there's, there's something in there that you can keep. So I like the, the consistency of normalcy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me, we've been talking quite a bit, sharing your story, sharing your journey, and you've been doing that on social media for quite a while now too. So what was it that really compelled you to start speaking up and sharing your story with Crohn's and other chronic illnesses? Sure. So actually it was killing it with Crohn's one year anniversary uh, a couple weeks ago. So I've been awesome. I guess, I know. happy anniversary. Thank <laughs> you. I'm like, happy birthday, me. Um, <laughs> but so I I I just felt like I had this story inside of me, in my heart, that just it didn't want to just stay there anymore. And it wanted to like meet a bunch of other people and other hearts who maybe shared something similar or needed some hope or a glimmer of inspiration and I'm not saying that I do this page so solely for inspiration but I needed some type of outlet because I when I was diagnosed I didn't know anybody with Crohn's or colitis so Mm -hmm. I was and no one in my family has it so I felt so isolated and so alone and your family and your friends, they love you to death, but they don't, they don't know what, what it's like. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've always liked to write and connect with people. Um, I'd say like, I'm a bit dramatic when I write, (laughs) I have like an interesting Mm -hmm. style. It's very melodramatic, but I was like, you know what? Like I like to express myself X, Y, and Z this way. So mm-hmm. I made Killing It with Crohn's and I just wanted to share my story in hopes of like stumbling upon someone else out there in the universe that maybe felt a slimmer of the way I did and just so that mm-hmm. we're not that alone. And what's the experience been like for you in becoming an advocate and going through this process and sharing your story? What's that experience been for you? It has been the best ever Um, Mm I have, I mean, I feel like social media, we all struggle with social media sometimes because there are highs and lows of social media, I will Mm -hmm. say, but killing it with Crohn's has been a fabulous, wonderful journey and I'm excited to keep going on it. But 
I have met so many people. I've met my best friend in the whole world, um, Avery. Mm-hmm. If you listen to this, I love you. Um, <laughs> and she, I, I have met my some of my other like s- the sweetest soulmates of my life um, on this app, and it's insane to me. Like the connections I've made. Like I literally went mm-hmm. to Seattle across the country to meet and hang out with three of the best people I've ever met in my life. And I would have never, ever, ever met them if it was not for Instagram. And I, so I've got to travel. I've got to do um, the Spin for Crohn's event and raise money. I've gotten mm-hmm. to, you know, connect with others and give others advice when they felt like they had no one. I even met people like mm-hmm. on my campus when I was still in college that were like, I felt so alone. And now I have someone that literally goes to school with me that's gone through this. And I have had such a creative outlet for myself. And it really has, it has been the best. And I can't believe like an Instagram <laughs> handle has uh-huh. become the best, but it's been a blast. That is awesome to hear. And I, I love to hear it and I love to say it, but our IBD community is such an incredible community. And just like you, I've met some incredible connections just through Instagram that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you feel like you've known people your whole lives and and you've just known them through the pictures and stories that, <laughs> that you've shared such a connection with. So, yeah, it's the best. It's pretty incredible. It really is. Do you think that being an advocate and sharing your story has, and meeting so many other people, do you think that that's shaped your view of IBD? Absolutely. Um, I think, like I said before, I had this um, Instagram. I didn't know anyone. So I had this vision of, you know, like Crohn's sucks. It literally sucks. I'm all alone. Mm -hmm. My life is over. I'm never going to be normal, you know, because you think like there's this societal standard of normal. Like I should be 22 and I should be like chugging white claws Mm -hmm. in Miami. (laughs) And like, that's just not realistic right now for me. (laughs) So you're, you're like, I'm this like outcast, you know, I have this this sign on my forehead that says, I'm not like you. Mm -hmm. I have an invisible illness. Like, you know, So then I made this Instagram and I found like a sense of normalcy because I was like, oh my God, I'm not the only one that goes to bed at 9 p.m. on Fridays and like (laughs) wakes up early and, you know, like does not eat corn. (laughs) So I feel like I feel normal. You know, you lose that when you're diagnosed at first Mm -hmm. and when you're having those flares and when you feel hopeless you're like i'm not normal i'm not x y and z i am uh i'm a loser i am an outcast there's something wrong with me but like that's not the case and this platform Mm -hmm. has showed me that normal looks different for everybody and this is mine and i really love it and i'm sure that my friends they love their sense of normalcy and just the validating of like you know what girl like that's normal because i'm also you know chugging decaf lattes yeah i love that i love that i I just i love how you phrase that and how you put it that i feel normal when i'm a part of this and just that normal does look different for everyone so i'm sitting here with a big grin on my face because i can I can hear your excitement coming through and it just, it warms my heart because I, I love this community so much and to just know that mm-hmm. so many people can benefit in such amazing ways just by reaching out and being active and being part of the community, even just on Instagram. I know. I, I was probably just like screaming into my mic. <laughs> I love Instagram. <laughs> but this, okay. you know, community is something we all, we all strive for whether it's a community of fitness, it's a community of video games, um, like-minded scholars, we all, human nature, yeah. crave community. And to stumble upon this IBD community on an 
an app, an Instagram application is one of the best blessings of my 2019. Yeah, (laughs) I would agree. (laughs) So if people do want to follow you, I know I mentioned it in the beginning, but go ahead and share your Instagram handle. And then do you keep up with your blog or anything like that? Share share anywhere that people can follow and, and keep up with your journey. Sure. So I, my Instagram name is Killin' It, K-I-L-L-I-N, it with Crohn's. Um, that I only have an Instagram right now, but I have some fun news coming yeah. within the next month where you can follow my journey a little bit more, but I'm not going to exactly disclose that yet because it's going to be a huge announcement at the end of the month. So uh-huh. go to my Instagram. I'll be like dropping some hints. Um, yeah, I just have my Instagram right now, but I pretty much blog the crap out of my captions and just write like sagas. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you can find me there. <laughs> awesome. Well, I will put that in the show notes and I know I will definitely stay on the lookout for the big news that's coming. And mm, and yes, once once I'm you so do pumped. announce it, I'll I'll go back and edit the show notes for the future and put that in. But I'll definitely put your Instagram link oh, in thank there you, for thank now. You. <laughs> so that is awesome. Well well I thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today and sharing your story. I had a great time. I love hearing the stories every time. So thank you for taking the time out of your night and joining me on the show. Oh, no. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. I'm picky about the way my clothes fit, especially leggings. So many brands either sit awkwardly or pinch around my waist, which is why I was pleasantly surprised to discover how comfortable my pineapple clothing leggings are. They're silky smooth, soft and feel like a second skin. I love them so much, they're actually the only thing I wear outside of work now. Going to the movies, working out, or lounging around the house, I'm always in my pineapple pants. Plus they have lots of great styles, from simple black to fun holiday patterns. Visit Crohn'sFitnessFood.com forward slash pineapple and use code STEGIS for 20% off your order and find out for yourself how great these leggings are. Thank you for listening to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an IBD story, either as a patient or a family member, that you'd like to share as a guest on this podcast, or if you have a topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email at crohn'sfitnessfood at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about me and my Crohn's journey, follow me on Instagram using at Crohn's Fitness Food or visit my blog for in-depth articles about my struggles and victories with Crohn's through diet, fitness, and lifestyle at www.crohn'sfitnessfood.com. And finally, remember, be strong, be grateful, and be the warrior that you are.